Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Greetings once again, everyone. Thanks for coming back. Laszlo Montgomery here with another China History Podcast episode. I was staring at my roster of recent episodes and noticed it was bulging at the seams with all the topics from the past 200 years. You'd almost have to go back to that nine-part History of Philosophy series from end 2017 to get an adult dose of ancient Chinese history. For those of you who wrote to your humble narrator asking what's up with that... I heard you. When I was researching this subject, I noticed one thing the U.S. and China have in common, and that we're both, to some extent, a melting pot of different languages and cultures. Here in the beautiful country, this is a result of our longstanding immigration policy, there's not much we don't have here as far as world cultures go. China's example is different, but there are still a multitude of languages, cultures, and history, too. This didn't come from immigration, but from a mixture of what was already there more than 2,000 years ago when the China-recorded historical timeline began. And today, as we've done in the past with the Hakkas in CHP 150 and Diojus in CHP 176 and the Toisan in CHP 194, we're going to look at yet another one of the superstars of Chinese culture, the Hokkien people. They're also called the Hoklo. Maybe some of you have heard that term before. There's more ways than one to write the Chinese characters for Hoklo. The most common would be probably Fulao, which means Fujian folk or people. I'll list the other ways Hoklo is written in the show notes and the uh, terms from the episode. I found four. Like the Hakka people, the Hoklos from time to time had to put up with the scorn and occasional hostility of the local Cantonese. If you remember from that Hakka episode, the Cantonese called them Hakkas, using the term Hakka in the pejorative sense, calling them guest people, not the people who belonged, from somewhere else. They used the term Hakka to deride them, and in time... The Hakkas seized that word and took proud ownership of it. The Hokkien people, they were called Hoklos by many of those who called Guangdong province their home. But when the Cantonese weren't looking, these Fujian people, these Hokkien, they went and stole that Hoklo name, and they too wore it like a splendid mantle, and they've owned it ever since. I don't want to say Cantonese and Hokkien didn't get along, but in the early days... Not a lot of love lost between these two uber groups of southern Chinese. The Chaoshan region that we looked at in CHP 176, I mentioned this extreme eastern corner of Guangdong province was so close to Fujian, the Hokkien and Diochus, well, they didn't always get along, but the Hokkien found they had more in common with the Diochus than they did the Hakkas or Cantonese. The border of Fujian is a mere hour away from Chaozhou versus a five-hour drive to Guangzhou. In this part one episode, let's focus on the history of the homeland of the Hokkien or Hoklo people. 
Fujian province, the next province up the China coast from Guangdong, with Zhejiang to the north, Jiangxi to the west. Where our story is concerned, there's two things going on in Fujian. You have one world that revolved around today's provincial capital of Fuzhou in the north, and the world we're looking at today, the Hokkien. Not the same as Hokju, as these Fuzhounese are called. Hokkien people, that's southern Fujian. That's where the Hokkien language is spoken, Minnanhua. The people of Fuzhou, Fuzhouren, they're different. They don't speak the Minnan or southern Min dialect. They speak Mindong or eastern Min, the Fuzhou dialect thereof. There's also local dialects of Fuzhounese spoken in Gutian, Ningde, Changle, Fuqing, and the Mazu Islands. And like the Hokkien, the Fuzhou people are spread out all over the planet. In the same places you'll find Hokkien people, and though their numbers are smaller, they're no less accomplished in their achievements. Fujian province, the name comes from the ancient cities of Fuzhou and Jianzhou, today's Nanping, or just north of there, Fuzhou, Jianzhou, Fujian. In Fujian, everything is mean this and mean that. That Chinese character, Min, you see on all Fujian registered license plates. It's the name of the biggest river and the most important one. The Min River flows through the northern part of the province to the East China Sea, emptying out where Fuzhou is today. That's why Fuzhou is so important, so ancient, and where the ancient Min people house their leaders. It's the name of their dialect, the style of cuisine, culture. Yeah, Fujian, a mean place to live. During the time of Confucius, 5th century BCE, these lands south of the Yangtze River, it was wild country. The indigenous locals down there were not Han Chinese in the least. They tattooed their faces, punched out their teeth, wore clothing that was not Han at all, and had all those unfamiliar rituals. It was like walking onto a set of a National Geographic special. These people were the Bai Yue, the Hundred Yue. You've heard of them before in previous CHP episodes. Bai means a hundred. So, the Hundred Yue. That was the umbrella term for all these different people who, since Chinese prehistory, lived in these southern lands, stretching from about Yunnan in the west all the way east to Jiangsu and Zhejiang. We first learn of this Baiyue term in the Liu Shi Chunqiu of the 3rd century BCE classic, the Annals of Master Liu Bu Wei of Qin, a contemporary of Qin Shi Huang. He also got a mention in that two-part Qin series. You might recall the wars between the Wu state in Jiangsu and the Yue in Zhejiang, kings Fu Chai and Gou Jian. That's CHP episode 111, if you missed that one. At the same time, these two warring states were contending for supremacy in the rich lands along the lower Yangtze River. Yet another group of these Baiyue people to the southeast. These were the Min Yue. In 334 BCE, the Yue kingdom up in Zhejiang was defeated by Chu. We've mentioned them several times. Chu state, centered around where Hubei is today. It was a powerful force to reckon with during the Warring States period that 
preceded the Qin. Many of these Yue royals escaped capture by the Chu military and fled southward in the direction of Fujian. And I have this on Sima Qian's authority. Now, according to the grand historian, it was these fleeing Yue royals and nobles who, after Yue was defeated by Chu, settled in Fujian and set up a new Minyue kingdom that lasted from 334 to 111 BCE. The ancient capital was at Ye, near where today's Wuyishan is located, which means they were never lacking for good tea. Then later, the Minyue capital was moved to a place called Dongye, Eastern Ye, and that place we know today as Fuzhou. So we know Fujian's capital went back at least to the time of this Minyue kingdom. The name of the city was officially changed to Fuzhou in 948, during the Ten Kingdoms period that followed the demise of the Tang. But in the time of the Minyue kingdom, at least, not many Han Chinese had ventured down this far in significant numbers. From past CHP episodes, we all know the end of the Warring States period concluded with the ultimate victory of Qin State over all the remaining contenders, including Chu in 223 BCE. Qin Shi Huang became the first emperor of imperial China and wasted no time scaling his northern Chinese empire, with the whole Yellow River Plain from Shanxi to Shandong under Qin control, not to mention Sichuan as well. The only way to grow was to expand south. The riches and exotic imports down there from all the sea trade with the Southeast Asian traders were well known to all. And compared to what they were used to in the north, yeah, the weather down there wasn't so bad either. Qin Shi Huang was serious about incorporating this portion of the future Chinese nation into his brand new empire. From 221, at the very commencement of the Qin dynasty, clear through to 214 BCE, five Qin armies, almost half a million soldiers, tried to conquer these many Baiyue tribes and kingdoms. He was only partly successful, but he did meet with success in Minyue and set up a military presence there in the form of a Jin, or commandery. Where did the Qin set it up? Minho County, adjacent to ancient Fuzhou. It took the Qin military till 214 BCE to subdue the Lingnan region of South China, but they wouldn't be denied and did ultimately plant the Chinese flag in what is today Guangdong, Guangxi, and northern Vietnam, all covered in that six-part series on the history of China-Vietnam relations. That was uh, CHP 197 to 202. You all remember Zhao Tuo and his role in the subjugation of these Baiyue and the establishment of the Nanyue kingdom. After 214 BCE, Qin Shi Huang flooded the conquered Baiyue lands with Han settlers from the northern plains of Shanxi, Henan, and all along the Yellow River. They went down there in bulk, I might add. Now, up till that time, 3rd century BCE, these Baiyue lands in Zhejiang, Fujian, Guangdong, Guangxi, northern Vietnam, and Jiangxi, all these provinces south of the river. I hesitate to call them wild people, but 
They were not Han and knew not of Confucianism and all the cool things about Chinese culture. In the eyes of a cultured northern aristocrat, these Yue tribesmen in the south were downright savages. But two different worlds were about to merge, and we all know who the big winners were. But merge they did. Although we can say, starting with the Qin Dynasty, Chinese culture triumphed after being introduced to southern China. It did so with all kinds of additions, improvements, enhancements, and a gaggle of new languages, dialects, topolects, and regionalects. Sinicization of these Baiyue lands in the south began during the Qin, but took hold during the Han. But in between the vacuum of leadership that happened between the fall of the Qin and the rise of the Han, many of these Baiyue reconstituted themselves in their former lands. The Minyue had been conquered by the Qin, but after backing Liu Bang in the Chu Han contention, the new Han emperor Gaozu restored the Minyue as a kingdom based in Fuzhou. Minyue covered parts of Fujian, Jiangxi, Zhejiang, and Guangdong. 183 to 135 BCE, Minyue submitted to Zhao Tuo of Nanyue. And if you recall, after the passing of Han Emperor Gaozu, Zhao Tuo decided to break away from the imperial court, especially with the cruel and notorious Empress Liu in charge. After the passing of Zhao Tuo in 137 BCE, once again, the Minyue tried to assert themselves and went on the offensive against neighboring tribes, not to mention the Nanyue. The Nanyue king Zhao Mo, son of Zhao Tuo, he couldn't fight the Minyue on his own and called on the mighty Han Emperor Wu to help him with this little Minyue problem. But as things turned out, these mean royals fixed this problem for everyone with a bit of fratricide that did away with their warlike ruler and his territorial aspirations. Minyue ended up getting partitioned with half called Dongyue, and the other part remained as Minyue, but with a Han proxy king on the throne. But this wasn't to last long. Dongyue did something to make the Han government angry, so troops were sent down in 111 BCE, and the Dongyue were done in, and all Minyue lands were absorbed by the Han Empire. And that was the official end of that. Fujian has been on the map of China ever since. Minyue and Nanyue, yeah, those were two big acquisitions. Although the Minyue lands were well into the process of sinicization, you still didn't have a lot of Han Chinese yet. That was about to change, however. With all the unpleasantness brought on by Wang Mang's interregnum that divided Eastern from Western Han, many who guessed correctly that things in North China were going to go downhill after that, started to migrate in larger numbers in a southerly direction. But as far as those events that were so bloody horrible that double-digit percentages of northern Huaxia Chinese migrated as far away from those lands just beyond the Great Wall as possible, there were two. The first one yeah, you heard it all before in the Diochu episode, CHP 176. The Wuhu, the five barbarians, Xiongnu, as well as the Xianbei, Jie, Qiang, and Di, these were 
Mongol, Turkic, Tibetan, Tungizic people, not Han. These nomadic people had always been sort of a pain to the Chinese going back to the beginning, but never like this. This Wu Hu Luanhua, this wasn't the last time millions of Chinese people would be savaged by an invader from lands beyond their borders, but it was the first 9.0 earthquake, so to speak. That's how China's Jin Dynasty got to welcome the 4th century. Over a period of time, lasting from 304 to 316, these Wuhu invaders ravaged the north of China. Aside from putting an end to the Western Jin Dynasty in 316, it led to this massive migration of Han Chinese to the south. And here, for the first time, you see a migration of people, not soldiers or settlers with promises of 20 acres and a mule from the emperor. These were elites, aristocrats, scholars, and all manners of beautiful people and their servants, too. They were heavily represented among those who made the exodus. The history books call these 4th century people the Yi Guanandu, the well-dressed who crossed the river and moved south. Almost all of these families who fell under the Yi Guanandu category, who ended up in Fujian as opposed to anywhere else, were surnamed Tan, Lim, Ng, and Te. In Mandarin, that's Chen, Lin, Huang, and Zheng. And all these people who planted their roots in Fujian province since the 4th century of the Common Era, the southernmost of them, from about Xiamen on down to practically Chaozhou, these were the Hoklo. And like I said, if they ended up on the Fujian-Jiangxi border, they formed the Hakka people. And if they found paradise down on the eastern coast of Guangdong, those were the Diochus. The second time this happened, that was during the Tang Dynasty. Not the good part, the blood-flowing years, 8th, 9th centuries. The horrors of the Anlushan and Huangchao rebellions brought even more northern Han Chinese running for their lives to the south, including to Fujian. During the time of Tang Kaozong in 677, he sent one of his trusted generals, Chen Zheng, to lead an army to the south with the objective of establishing Tang control of Fujian and to set up an administration down there. He brought with him his young son, Chen Yuanguang. Very early into the mission, Cheng Zhen died with his boots on, and the son, Chen Yuanguang, barely 20 years old, took over as head of the military forces tasked with pacifying all the revolts and breakaway towns and cities in Fujian. Now, Chen Yuanguang did just that and was credited with being the one in the Tang Dynasty to firmly place southern Fujian into Chinese direct control. He didn't form a breakaway kingdom like Zhao Tuo. He was more like a, a Wu Taibo character who back in his day went from north to south five centuries before, bringing all the best of Han culture to the ancient Wu state. Taibo, we looked at him in CHP 111. Not much has changed since that episode. And thanks to the effort of Chen Yuanguang's reforms and Chinese ideas and technologies that he introduced, this whole region of southern Fujian, Quanzhou, Changzhou, and down to Chaozhou, and clear through to the Taiwan Strait, 
He was the one who got the pump primed for the explosion of wealth, culture, and prosperity that followed in the wake of these three particular cities' role in Southeast Asian trade, and most famously, as the starting point of China's maritime Silk Road that stretched all the way to the Persian Gulf and Arabian Sea. During Wu Zetian's reign as the only woman in Chinese history to rule as an empress in her own name, Chen Yuanguang lobbied hard on behalf of the cities of Zhangzhou and Quanzhou, and his efforts paid off, and Zhangzhou was granted a great deal of independence and enjoyed the trappings of a prefecture. And the good people in Zhangzhou, as well as in Taiwan, Singapore, and Malaysia, and other places where a lot of Zhangzhounese ended up, they call Chen Yuanguang Kaijang Shengwang, the sage ruler of Zhangzhou. There are dozens and dozens of Shengwang miaos, or temples, all over those areas that honor Chen Yuanguang. He was killed in the line of duty in November 711, quelling disturbances in Chaozhou. I can't mention Zhangzhou without mentioning Quanzhou, or Zaitan, as Marco Polo called it back in his time. It was the Hong Kong and Guangzhou of Fujian, a trading entrepot of then world-renowned and home to people from all over the world. Just as Chang'an and Kaifang were at the peak of the Silk Roads era, Quanzhou was home to traders, diplomats, and visitors from all over the world. The history of Quanzhou went back to the Southern Dynasty's period, late 6th century. I guess if Quanzhou had to choose one thing to brag about, besides being the birthplace of Minnan culture and language, it'd have to be, as I just mentioned a second ago, the starting point of the ancient Maritime Silk Road. This was during the Song, and from this maritime tradition created during the Song, that's when these people of Quanzhou took to the seas and went out into the world. Today, if you live in a major city somewhere in this world, there's probably Hokkien people not too far away from you. Remember Four Fingers Wu, James Clavel, Noble House? He was a Hoklo from the Seaborn Wu clan. In the movie, he was played by the immortal Kai Dei, one of the true champions in the world of Hollywood yellowface. Anyway, the Hokkien and sea commerce, there was a long tradition. And when you talk about Hokkien communities all over Southeast Asia, these adventurers from Quanzhou were the earliest ones who went out and prospected for opportunities. By the Qing dynasty, these daring Hokkien had already spread out far and wide, all over Southeast Asia, wherever there was a trading port. Because of Fujian's advantageous position right on the China coast, the story of the Hoklos mirrors that of the Cantonese who enjoyed the same strategic location in Guangdong, the province to the west. With these trading ports of Xiamen and Quanzhou, it's no wonder that Fujian became a rich province. That tradition of trading, mixing with foreign traders so easily, it began in Fujian amongst these Hoklo people in these cities of Zhangzhou and Quanzhou and Xiamen. And just like their provincial neighbor to the west, when times got tough in China, or downright unbearable, these Hokkien were fine with picking up and leaving China and trying their luck elsewhere. 
between the ancient maritime Silk Road and later on in the 15th century during the Ming Dynasty, during the amazing voyages of Zheng He and all his treasure ships, it was from Quanzhou where they all set sail to ports stretching from Vietnam to the Swahili coast in Africa and north from there to Arab lands. So this fearlessness to get up and go, this enterprising spirit, familiarity with commerce and mixing with all kinds of people from Asia and Africa, and then later on from Europe, just like the Cantonese, it became second nature to these Hokkien people. And in the next episode, I'm going to focus more on the Hokkien people who left Fujian and went on to build communities in Malaysia, Singapore, Indonesia, Philippines, Thailand, and well, pretty much every major city in the world, to some extent at least. Until that time, this is Laszlo Montgomery signing off from my home recording studio here in sunny and perfect Los Angeles, California, newly built with all the most modern history podcasting, recording, and editing equipment. I spared no expense. See you next time, everybody, and let us reconvene for another delicious and satisfying episode of the China History Podcast.